Digital deception is the new phase of information warfare. Social media has been weaponized by states and commercial entities alike. As bots and trolls proliferate and users are left to navigate an infodemic of fake news and disinformation. In this episode of the IDS Between the Minds podcast, IDS fellow Tony Roberts interviews Mark Jones, Assistant Professor of Middle East Studies at the Hamad bin Khalifa University, Qatar. Mark is the author of the book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East, Deception, Disinformation and Social Media. The book looks to unpick a global web of shadowy actors in the service of digital rights in the Middle East. Mark, welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks for making time to talk to us at IDS about your book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East, subtitled Deception, Disinformation and Social Media. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to uh, talking, chatting, answering the questions. Cool. I, I really enjoyed reading the book. I learned a lot about the Gulf region. I don't, I'm not familiar with the politics and the, the rivalries between those different countries. And the book provides really vivid examples of how online politics are, are playing out in the region in ways that are, are diminishing the space for open dialogue and, and demo, democratic discussion. And the, and the book's just such a really good read, really informative. So listen, my first question is, is really has two parts. Maybe could you just start with some kind of definitional issues about what, what do we mean by digital authoritarianism and by disinformation, which really runs through the center of your book. Um, before then telling us what, what motivated you to write this book um, in the Middle East, especially. Uh, so, I mean, I, my background is media studies, uh, journalism, and it just so happened that when I started my PhD, it was 2011. So the beginning of the Arab uprisings, my PhD topic was actually social media and uh, it's, it's kind of role in civil society in the public sphere. And again, you know the, the the kind of paradigm or the the thoughts at the time about social media was very much that it was this liberating tool that it was going to help uh, hold authoritarian governments to account help people organize and potentially help people achieve more democratic governance uh and you know people waving signs with facebook and twitter and that kind of thing uh but i i realized very quickly because i was i was you know spending a lot of time on twitter as a lot of people were that actually so many people i knew who were activists and otherwise were were finding that they were being intimidated, that they were, um, you know, being harassed online. You know, I'd even get messages from friends saying, Mark, be careful what you're saying. The, the Mukhabarat, which is like the secret services, are always on, online looking at things. And, you know, and, and more and more stories like that and, and stories of surveillance and peer-to-peer -peer surveillance, doxing, it all happened very quickly. And I just began to be fascinated by this. And then I started finding, you know, my own kind of doing my own investigations, one of which I document in the book, but it's fake journalist who managed to trick a lot of people into believing she was real when she was actually spreading pro-government propaganda. And I became so interested in this notion of deception. So I think that's what motivated me um, on a main level. And I, I grew up in the Gulf. I grew up in Bahrain and Saudi. So I think the Middle East was always something that I, I would find interesting. In terms of definitions, I mean, digital authoritarianism is, I suppose, a fairly broad term. I mean, it's the use of digital technology, usually by authoritarian regimes to kind of surveil, repress and manipulate domestic and foreign populations. And, and there's a, a wide range of techniques involved in that from surveillance, censorship, social manipulation, harassment, cyber attacks, internet shutdowns, 
you know, targeted persecution against online users. So that's digital authoritarianism kind of in a nutshell. This disinformation is an aspect of that because this information is about social manipulation. This information, um, put simply, is the, uh, the spreading of false content with the intent to deceive. Um, and intention is, is key because you have to uh, intend to do it. And I actually kind of say deception is probably a better term because deception also just does, it's not just about content because this information focuses on intent to deceive and fake content, whereas deception is, could be fake content, but it could be real. But the means of distributing that content could be deceptive, like a fake account. So I think we have to make some of those nuanced distinctions. Yeah, I think we're used to reading about digital information, digital disinformation in the mainstream media here, but most of that content is overwhelmingly about events in the global north. And, and, and your book, I, I think more than any other available, uses the Middle East as the context for all of that. And it provides really rich content, uh, practical case studies of how powerful interests are using digital tools and communications professionals to um, realize their political objectives, to hold on, on to power. Um, you use this phrase of pseudo events. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, so, I mean, pseudo events, firstly, are, um, it's, it comes from Borstein's concept of pseudo events, which is the idea of a fake event, a staged event, a fabricated event that is de designed to uh, either motivate someone or some group of people into action, uh, and they can take different forms. And so there are events that don't really happen, but they are mediated in the sense that they're concocted for the media. You know, like one of the examples I give in the book was this, uh, there was this really bizarre incident in 2020. I was woken up by a friend who sent me a message saying, hey, Mark, there's a weird hashtag going on in the Gulf. And the hashtag was, you know, there was a coup, a coup d'etat in Qatar. And I live in Qatar. I was like, what is this? So I was, I was looking at the hashtag. There was all these stories of explosions, videos of explosions, videos with gunfire sounding in them, uh, you know, videos of helicopters flying around Doha and fires out of Doha and thousands and thousands of tweets saying that there was this coup in Qatar. And it was just, it was, it was absolutely bizarre. I think from the outside, if you didn't live here, you'd be like, what the hell's going on? And um, it turns out it was, just didn't exist, right? None of this was real. You could reverse search all these videos and find that they were taken from other uh, times and places, videos from exploding warehouses in China. Um, so they didn't exist. But this was a, a, a campaign that started on social media. It was picked up by local media in the Arab world. Uh, to sort of give the idea that, that there'd been this coup in, in Doha. And all the news reported it as like rumors of a coup in Doha. And then it happened a few weeks later, a similar hashtag. And it's like, well, this is obviously an organized effort because a lot of resources went into it. But it, it just was not true. So why would you do that? Well, I mean, there's many different reasons. But, you know, in this case, it was probably, you know, there's some, some idea that there was, there was attempts to try and generate unrest in Doha and try and force people to kind of resist the regime. Or it might have just been an attempt to portray Doha as unstable or a, a means to try to convince domestic populations in the Gulf that the blockade, which uh, happened in 2017, was, was politically worthwhile. So sometimes we don't know the reasons, but often they're pretexts for some political action. Um, so yeah, pseudo events are basically events that don't happen, but are created in the media for a political purpose. Um, and I detail a few of them in the book, I think. And, you know, <clears throat> who creates these events, well, we, we, we don't always know. But I mean, 
you mentioned the role of sort of Western companies. And, and I think this is a really interesting aspect of the whole disinformation supply chains, I call them, because, you know, when any disinformation operation or influence operation, you know, you have a customer and a, and, and, and a, and someone who, who uh, sells the product and someone who wants to utilize it. And often in this case, it's, um, uh, you know, governments buying services off spyware companies or PR companies. And a lot of those PR companies, for example, are based in Washington and the United Kingdom. And these PR companies are interesting because we've known about them for a while. You know, the likes of Bell Pottinger, uh, the British, famous British one, who often have contracts with um, foreign governments. Um, their biggest client before they were dissolved was the Bahraini government. And, you know, a lot of the playbook that they use that we've uh, come to know about through either leaks or through, you know, scandals is uh, actually deception. Uh, part of the, the product they sell is to lie. So, you know, like Bell Potting, for example, who are active in the Middle East, you know, what they would do for governments is create front groups, you know, fake groups of uh, citizens who opposed opposition activists, or they would uh, edit Wikipedia entries to make their government authoritarian clients more positive, or they would, you know, document who were the influential social media activists online, and then pass those things on to the government. That's just one example. In 2017, in the Gulf crisis, a, you know, a company linked to Cambridge Analytica, or rather a company working out of Dubai, a British company called Project Associates, worked with Cambridge Analytica uh, for the UAE Supreme Media Council to basically create fake or to create adverts rather on Facebook and social media that were targeting Qatar. And these adverts were essentially, uh, you know, accusing Qatar of terrorism, uh, focusing on Al Jazeera being this instrument of terror uh, and these kind of things. So these are reputable companies often based in Mayfair or somewhere fancy with, you know, employees who went to good universities who essentially are applying this trade of disinformation and getting a lot of money for it. And this is all legal and in theory above board. Uh, but it forms a big part of the disinformation apparatus. Um, and I think that's a really alarming thing because a lot of this is coming out of, you know, the global north democracies, you know, um, who are basically have company whose job it is, is to destabilize regions. And I, I don't use that term lightly. I mean, the Project Associates campaign I made was, you know, propaganda on behalf of uh, countries who are blockading another country and trying to raise social conflict in the region. That's dangerous territory, you know. It's dangerous. And, and the way that you tell those stories, you provide a number of kind of rich examples of practical campaigns that you've tracked down and, and studied, which makes the, the book a really interesting read. But I want you to say a little bit more about how you go about doing that. So, so sometimes we see things happening on social media and we're kind of suspicious. It doesn't look quite right. But but how do you research it? What are the steps you go through and, and what gives you the confidence to, to say that something is fake? Yeah, I mean, it depends what the particular issue is. I mean, a lot of the work I do, I mean, it's a bit varied, but uh, you know, I've, I, I do things, for example, like uh, identifying bots and bots are fake accounts, automated accounts that, um, that usually engage in mass retweeting in order to manipulate Twitter trends. And I sort of developed this technique over time. There's different ways of identifying bots, but you know, there's some of them are uh, probably more accurate than others. And I developed this way of, for example, if you see a trend and the trend looks suspicious, uh, it's like a, I don't know, a, 
a, a trend extolling the virtues of a particular politician. Uh, and then you download those tweets and you might have several thousand tweets, 20,000 tweets, for example. Um, and you could analyze those tweets en masse and you can find certain information in that data that would suggest to you that this campaign was orchestrated. And one of the things that, you know, the example I always use is creation dates, right? Twitter has been around since 2006. And so if you identify a hashtag campaign, there's a good chance, if it's an organic, a real genuine um, campaign, you'd expect a relatively even distribution of accounts created every month since 2006, probably a gradual increase with occasional mini peaks, depending on specific times like 2011 when the Arab uprisings started. But what you tend to find on very, very kind of campaigns that are obviously inorganic is you'll have like a, you know, the average amount of accounts created in the sample per month might be 50, but then you'll find a day of a particular week where, you know, 800 accounts are created. All those accounts have similar profile pictures, you know, similar bios or generic names. And then, you know, my experience of doing this and identifying those accounts has, has told me that those are, are clearly fake. And often that's validated to an extent afterwards when Twitter suspends those accounts. Although I also challenge that because Twitter don't suspend a lot of accounts that I believe to be fake. So, you know, my confidence now, I mean, I would never go public with something I didn't feel like sort of 99% confident um, about. The bots is an obvious example. There's other more problematic cases where you're actually interacting with probably what are real people engaged in some deception operation. That can be harder because you don't know what you're dealing with necessarily. Um, but, you know, I document a few cases in the book, one in the end where I spoke for several months to or weeks some guy who appeared to be like i don't know what the hell he was doing it was some guy guys but they were trying to fish for information about uh, middle east politics uh he pretended to be a british guy but it soon became clear that it was probably more than one person operating the account and and you know it was probably not a native speaker despite the fact he claimed to be a native speaker he kept contradicting himself and then eventually his account disappeared and then it reappeared as a, a going from a middle-aged british man to a a Cuban Spanish speaking teenager who loved Donald Trump, right? So, you know, these kind of forms of behavior, you, they're, they're, they're hard to rationalize in any other way. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. And, yeah. you know, I do other investigations in the book. I was, I was going to ask you to tell us about one because often when, when we civilians are watching uh, these strange events play out on social media, we imagine maybe it's just a single person, a kind of a rogue bad actor operating independently. But what's fascinating about some of the chapters in the book is that you show how that these are often sophisticated, well-planned operations uh, with professional teams working on them. So can, can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I think the most, um, the most uh, I would say, uh, outlandish and audacious example was probably the fake journalist chapter and uh you know i i i came across this uh someone sent me a message back in again 2020 i believe it was um that they'd received a message from someone who was asking them to promote this this article written by a journalist called lin nguyen who is vietnamese and uh, that opened sort of the door to this really bizarre few months where i worked with a journalist from the daily beast called adam ronsley investigating this network of fake journalists who who used uh, social media websites to create persona so each of these fake journalists would have you know linkedin page twitter page facebook page uh and you know they would then write op-eds opinion pieces very well written you know relatively sophisticated i suppose 
op-eds and then pitch these op-eds to editors in international news organizations. And when I say this, we're talking about all across the world, right? That they managed to publish articles, in the South China Morning Post, Asia Times, Newsmax, the National Interest, New Europe, Al Arabiya, like literally all over the world. And, um, they, they, you know, they wrote for these kind of blogs based in the Middle East called Arab Eye in Persia Now. And what we found is that all these journalists were using either uh, profile pictures that had been stolen from someone else's social media account. So one of the journalists who wrote for Newsmax, it's an American publication that was, was championed by Donald Trump, uh, called uh, his pseudonym was Rafael Badani, but he he used, stole the picture of some guy from California. Um, so he's using this guy's picture. And uh, there was other cases like that. But what happened is this network started then to use AI-generated images of faces, which are harder to trace as the network progressed. But by the end of it, we found that about 20 journalists, they'd published around 90 different opinion articles in over uh, 40 different international wow. news organizations, all by essentially social engineering. So when we actually asked the editors, when we were doing this investigation, we got in touch with the editors saying, why did you publish this? Did you meet this person? None of them had met the people. They'd all been approached via email, and I think at the most a phone call, but no one had done a video interview with any of these people. But in an, what amazed me in 2020, in an age, you know, years after we've been talking about the post-truth age and disinformation, newspaper editors were being fooled in this really, really obvious way. And the articles, you know, were quite sophisticated. And, you know, by, by the end, when we had 90 articles, we could sort of analyze them to sort of figure out what the stance was. And it seemed clear that they had a hawkish right wing in the American sense stance, anti-Iran, pro-Israel. They were also kind of anti-Turkey and pro-UAE. Pro I mean, the pro-UAE thing, I think, was the clincher because everything else was like a sort of criticizing some other regime, but the pro-UAE elements suggested to us that it was probably the United Arab Emirates. I mean, it was probably some entity working on behalf of someone in the United Arab Emirates. And that was based on the content, but also my experience of working in the region where we know these countries are, are soliciting uh, the work of or the help of companies who engage in this kind of behavior uh, for propaganda purposes. But it was clearly organized and relatively sophisticated. I say relatively because the content produced, the outcome of the operation was sophisticated, but it relied on a very simple trick, which was to trick people. Yep. Um, rely, basically abuse people's good nature and naivety, uh, which is social engineering. And that's that's the damning thing about this, I think, is no matter what we do, there is always going to be a human element in a lot of this disinformation. And if someone can charm you, you're like a Dell boy character, then you risk being made a fool of. Well, th and that leads me to a question I wanted to come on to about who is harmed by this action. So w when I was preparing for this interview, I, I went back and listened to a previous episode of Between the Lines that I recorded with Nanjala Nayabola. Um, and it was about digital politics in Kenya. And she told us how social media is being used there um, to pursue patriarchal misogyny and fan the flames of ethnic and ethno-religious divisions. So uh, is that something that you also see seeing played out in the Middle East? I mean, absolutely. I think uh, where, where there is um, the information space, the digital information space or the media space, we always reflect what's going on in society. 
And in that society, if you have people, especially people of influence uh, or people of, with wealth um, who have certain beliefs, they will try to use the instruments at their disposal to try and project their beliefs. And I think obviously social media has lowered the bar to access. It's cheaper and more accessible. But you know, you see in, in the Middle East, for example, a lot of the early work I did on, on bot research, analyzing fake accounts was on hate speech to do with sectarianism. And it was really interesting because um, you know, I found networks of thousands and thousands of accounts. And this was before Twitter announced uh, that they would publish data linked to state-backed influence operations and i'd found thousands and thousands of accounts all spreading mostly anti-shia hate speech right so and this was a bizarre case because i worked again with a colleague or a friend who in citizen lab and we managed to tr look at the metadata of all these tweets and trace all the tweets from these fake sectarian accounts back to a guy who programmed the network who at the end of the day was appeared to be like some a guy from egypt who 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 was a pharmacist but did programming on the side and and worked for a Saudi news channel. Um, and the Saudi news channel itself also had a specific channel dedicated to, uh, well, anti-Iranian propaganda. It was called Safavid Plan. Safavid is like a derogatory term often used against, um, you know, Iranians. And that was the name of the channel. And he had employed someone to do their social media. And this social media guy was creating all these fake accounts and the fake accounts were spreading this sectarian propaganda. So it's absolutely... <laughs> used for that purpose and the funny thing is is the irony i suppose of the authoritarian regimes is that authoritarian governments know what's going on in their country right something's going on online and they don't like it that person who's responsible will be arrested or silenced or told to shut up which means that if something's happening like sectarian hate speech being promoted by a you know a, a news channel that has to have permission from the ministry of culture to operate then the government is basically saying okay, we're going to turn a blind eye to this. So the government tacitly endorses it. That's the weird thing about authoritarian regimes, right? If it's happening, it's kind of permitted. Um, so I think that's an interesting case. I mean, it suggests that the state also plays a role in allowing this to happen, but there's also going to be private, private actors who will use resources to spread their forms of hatred or, or, or racism or bigotry or sectarianism. And is there a, a gender dimension to it? Do, do female political um, commentators receive particular attention? Well, I suppose, I suppose one of the things about the, the Middle East is there's not many female political polit politicians. Political commentators, yes. I mean, I, I, was, I was kind of careful in the book to actually deal with some of the gender aspects of it because I think it's really important. I mean, there's one or two cases in particular but what I think is a really fascinating aspect of, of the region is we've seen, you know, we have a, an incredible phenomenon now or, or development in the sense that the US has a, a Muslim congresswoman, Yelohan Omar is the first, was the first Muslim congresswoman, which is it's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, but despite that, she's actually become a target for the, um, you know, for countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Who and Saudi in particular is bizarre because it's you know the you know there's the custodian of the holy mosque. It's meant to be seen as an important country, I think, for Muslims everywhere. And because Ilana Omar is is critical not just of Israel, but critical of Saudi's role in Yemen, she then becomes a target for loads of these trolls who have targeted her, and which I document in the book, using racist and, and sexist language um, to harass her because she's critical of Saudi. The same is true of journalists in the region who criticise. Um, authoritarian governments. You know, one of the chapters I dedicate to 
the story of an Al Jazeera journalist who was hacked, her personal information shared online by trolls, uh, manipulated in the sense that they claimed that this image of her in a bikini was her going to the chairman of Al Jazeera to sleep with him in, in exchange for promotion. And then you have thousands of trolls harassing her, attacking her, uh, you know, accusing her of being a slut, slut shaming her, drawing cartoons about her. Um, so, you know, how women activists or critics get treated is different from how male critics get treated. And all the way, this is all ties into what is perceived as culturally appropriate, appropriate is wrong, but culturally appropriate or relevant forms of humiliation. Like what you'll see often with male activists, they might get accused of being homosexual, whereas women activists will get women activists or journalists will get accused of being sluts, right? So it's playing on conservative values of of of, of morality. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, there is there is a difference. And um, it would be even worse, I think, if there was more women in public life. Yeah. Um, are there positive examples in the Middle East of digital tools and spaces being used to create um, new democratic space? Is it I mean, all bad news? No, I mean, my, my book is mostly bad news, but... Um, <laughs> There is, I mean, of course, I, you know, I, I do focus on the negatives because I think the moment we're living in, it, it, there's an ascendancy, but digital technology and the use of it does tie in with the political structures. So if the political structures are anti-democratic, then tech, what happens in digital space will reflect that. But having said that, I, I don't, I, I think it's hard to challenge the idea that people will use, and they do use, despite the risks, these technologies to discuss to organize, to express themselves. And I often think there's a honeymoon period. A new technology will come out and people will use it um, because it offers some new forum for discussion and, and do so without necessarily the kind of fear of retribution. Clubhouse, the kind of audio-based conversational app that came out, I think last year, when it came out, it went spread around the region like wildfire, you know, and people were using it to discuss all sorts of sensitive issues. And admittedly, those were closed down in a lot of times by sort of, uh, type entities, but I think they'll also lose interest after a while and people will go back to those spaces and discuss things. And maybe it won't be as effective as before, but yeah, people do use those spaces. I think the capacity to achieve a critical mask that mass that can lead to social change is, is, is challenged, but they still offer spaces in which discussions that might be hard otherwise to, to have can take place. And some research we were doing, someone talked about it being a kind of a whack-a-mole game that when a new space opens or a new technology becomes available, um, young tech-savvy activists are often first to exploit it. And it takes the old men in government some time to catch up. But, but when they catch up, they, they catch up with deep pockets and um, institutional capacity that enables them to to slow it down. So there's this kind of backwards and forwards game of whack-a-mole that yeah. no one's ever a hundred percent successful in winning. Um, it's it's true. I mean, this is the notion of adversarial kind of change. I mean, it's noted, I think, in social movement theory that activists generally do adapt. They have to adapt, right? They use those new technologies to as a forum. And authorities or states will always have to respond somehow. And there's a lag. And that's why I always call it a honeymoon period in a way. There's a yeah. period of time in which it can thrive and then like you said the the government has usually m far more resources to tackle those things with and um, and tackle it they do when you talk about future technologies that the title of your final chapter is 
the future of deception and digital tyranny. Um, can you tell us a bit about what that future might look like and uh, what, what new areas will you be researching in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'll keep an eye on what's going on in the Middle East. I think what I find interesting is that we've seen the explosion of digital technology across the world. Uh, and again, we had that same, regardless of where we were in the world, this sort of euphoria about the benefits of social media, how it would reinvigorate the public sphere. Um, but what that led to in many places was like attendant issues of privacy, what happens to our data, how is our data being monetized and commodified. And, you know, we see in like Europe, for example, or rather the EU, throughout the advent of the GDPR, which is really a product of people realizing the dangers of having all the information there and the ability to then protect that data in specific ways. And that is a product too of having a form of governance or in, in a way, I suppose, a political um, block in which there's a multitude of democracies where people's grievances about technology can be heard and then hopefully realized into policy. What scares me, I think, about the Middle East and maybe Africa too, is the fact that without that political infrastructure or democracy, then what really is happening is that technology is at the mercy, mercy of autocratic regimes. And, and, and I think without the political, without, if people don't have the political power to actually you know, dictate policy around tech, then all it's going to do is allow technology to be increasingly exploited in ways that serve oppressive ends. And, and, you know, I think in particular with like surveillance tools like Pegasus made by NSA Group in Israel, you know, these tools are, are designed to basically violate some of the most, you know, the sanctity of our private lives by accessing our phones. And we've seen in the Gulf states in particular, the willingness that those regimes use that technology. It's almost like, you know, um, trivial how they, they deploy it. And I think this, I think, you know, there's that, the Arendtian notion of totalitarianism, kind of the studies of totalitarianism died out, I suppose, when the USSR died out and authoritarianism became the kind of dominant paradigm. But totalitarianism was an interesting idea because the main focus was the actual destruction of privacy. The idea that totalitarian regimes are obsessed really with knowing the minutiae of everyone's everyday life and controlling that. And that is what I think is what I worry about the future of technology, because I think these authoritarian regimes are so paranoid, they will do everything they can to stay in power. And that, and they have now have the ability to be able to invade people's private lives with intrusive electronic surveillance. And that's what my fear is. And I think that is already happening. And I think, you know, developments in AI and, and that kind of thing are one thing, but when people talk about AI, they often talk about it in very abstract terms. AI can be deployed like many other things, it's deployed by whoever is directing its targets or goals. And I think if authoritarian regimes have more access to AI, the bots will be getting more sophisticated. Uh, the ability to process large amounts of data will be getting more sophisticated. The modeling of you know, threats against regimes will be more sophisticated. And as we become datafied subjects, you know, civilians or citizens who have data profiles, uh, the rise of data-based technologies will just mean that everyone has these kind of virtual digital profiles that will be um, exploited in certain ways or, or allow them to be people to be manipulated or controlled in, 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 in other ways. And I think this is going to happen everywhere, but I see the, the, the Middle East in particular as like a wild west. Uh, I, it's very negative, I know. Um, I, I, I might be being, like a, being a bit dramatic, but 
you know, well, I, I think one of the really positive things about the book is that that you analyze the use of technology in that pol political context and as a as a tool of power. Mm. Um, if you have great people in power that only have the interests of their citizens at, in their heart, then that tool could be a very positive tool. Mm. But uh, that's not the world we live in. It's certainly not in the countries that that we've been talking about. Um, Mark, what do you see as the main messages of your book? Of the book, um, what is it that you'd like the reader to to take away? I think the the, the takeaways are, are numerous. I mean, firstly, the argument is, is is generally fairly straightforward. I argue that the Middle East needs to be taken more seriously in terms of disinformation. I argue that there there are rising new digital superpowers that include the likes of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. We're using digital technology not just to repress people abroad, but try to influence global politics. Um, I want people to understand that on a, on a broader level to just uh, improve or enhance people's critical abilities when it comes to approaching social media. Because, you know, I'm, I'm talking about tools that are used by a lot of different people, people who are interested in politics, people who are not. Um, and I want people to understand that these spaces that might be benign for some there are risks attendant risks to these things uh, but on the whole i want people to sort of understand that digital technology is a tool we shouldn't get carried away with the idea that technology will save us because first uh, as a human as societies we have to actually uh, have you know political systems that uh, and respect for human rights um, that allow technology to be used in, in ways that are conducive i think to 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 a better world and i want people to know that these these bad things do exist um, and that people suffer as a consequence of them. Great, Mark. Thank you very much for the book. I, I really enjoyed reading and thank you for making time to discuss it with us here on Between the Lines. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at Between the Lines at IDS dot ac dot uk